This is the Cinema for All podcast. The celebration of going to the cinema with Jack Chell and Abby Standish. Welcome to the Cinema for All podcast. We've got a mini episode today, Ab. It's been a while since we've had a mini episode, isn't it? It has indeed, but we thought we'd give an extra little treat today. Yeah, we've got for you a very special interview with Sam Riley, who is the star of Radioactive, which is a new film that's out this year, starring Rosemont Pike as Marie Curie and Sam Riley as Pierre Curie. It's a great film and it's really exciting to see a film about a women scientist, especially after we've had sort of a spate of films like Theory of Everything, those sorts of films. So Sam Riley is a British actor and he's really fantastic. I think he bust into the scene in Control uh, by Anton Corbin probably about probably about 12 or 13 years ago now um, in which he played Ian Curtis and he, he just put in an incredible performance. He's also been in lots of films since. He was in... Um, Brighton Rock, the sort of the, the version of Brighton Rock that was set in the 60s. It was a bit of a mod version, but he was fantastic in that. He put in a really great performance as Pinky. Um, and he, yeah, he's just a great British actor and he plays Pierre Curie in this film. And producer Jay did a little Zoom interview with him. So we're really excited to get into that. But before we get started, we thought we'd just have a quick chat, me and you, Ab, about um, scientists on film, especially any kind of female scientists that we might have seen in biographical film. Can you think of any? <laughs> you know what when it comes to kind of like female scientists or females in the stem profession it's few and far between represented on film but the one that sticks out for me which i just love as a film um and so glad it got made is hidden figures oh yeah which is the story of Catherine Johnson, Dorothy Vaughan and Mary Jackson, who were the mathematicians slash scientists who helped essentially get NASA into space. And without them, it wouldn't have been possible. And it's a story that's not really had much light shed on it before then. Um, and it's obviously very important because it's um, three black women who were in these fields, which is even rarer to kind of see and be respected, especially during the time um, that they were working at NASA um, and it's just a fantastic film and it has such an effect and I remember seeing at the Oscars or an awards show um, the real Dorothy Vaughan came out on stage and it was quite an emotional moment to to see her there um, and just the, the amazing work that she's done along with Catherine Johnson and Mary Jackson and um, you could see how that, how much it illuminated the actors as well um, t- to meet to meet her um, so that's the only one I can really think of. What about you? Yeah, kind of struggling to think of a biographical one in the same way as I mentioned the the theory of everything and those sort of films all came kind of came out at the same time about sort of male scientists and personal struggles that they might have been through. But for women, I think maybe we'd look to documentary a little bit more. So um, you were a big fan of that Hedy Lamar doc, weren't you? Yes, yeah. I mean, she is just sensational um, as a person and her integral work into the sonar system, which has developed our use of um, mobile phones and Wi-Fi and all the things that we rely heavily on, especially right now at the moment. She was a big part of um, creating that system, essentially. Mm, It's absolutely bonkers. I'm I'm sure there must be a biographical film about Hedy Lamarr in the works. I mean, I think a lot of people are much more aware of that scientific work that she did now, more so than ever. So I'm sure somebody's developing that film. 
Yeah, I hope so. I hope if, so. If and not, we should be doing whoever it. Whoever gets to play her, wow, so lucky. <laughs> yeah, amazing. Another interesting thing is, um, as you know, producer Jay, and including yourself, we're, we're big X-Files fans. And um, whilst I was watching the X-Files, I remember reading about something called the Scully Effect, which was a 2012 study by um, the Gina Davis association which you know reading any of their studies is super interesting they focus a lot on kind of um gender representation and how that affects um just general life so in 2012 um they did a study in children's media and found that for every 15 male characters shown in a stem job so science technology engineering and mathematics um so for every 15 male characters shown in children's media in a job like that there was only one female character portrayed in that profession Um, and that has shown that that kind of affects girls and women growing up thinking that those professions don't exist for them and therefore they might not pursue those careers so in the 2018 study which was a Scully effect study it looked at the influence of um, the protagonist Dana Scully played by Gillian Anderson uh, and her influence on women and girls entering the STEM field. So nearly two-thirds of women working in STEM today say that Scully served as their professional and personal role model mm. and increased their confidence to kind of pursue this really male-dominant profession. Um, so that's kind of where a lot of um, the Gina Davis kind of quote about if she can see it, she can be it kind of came from because there was this concrete study uh, about just one character's effect on a whole industry. Mm. Which I think is probably one of the reasons why Hidden Figures is an even more powerful film with um, three black women at the heart of that story, even rarer stories to be told. Um, so um, I imagine and I really, really hope that a lot of um, young black girls are going to see those role models and, and be inspired to go into STEM, which I think is something that a lot of a lot of girls and women are told is not for them. I think, um, I think perhaps us growing up in the 90s, I think we were sort of perhaps push towards more arts things, English things, history things, um, and perhaps told that it, it wasn't for us. So I, I, I do hope and I actually do see that there is a swing towards more girls and young women exploring STEM um, for careers. And I think it's really exciting. Definitely, definitely. It's so, so important to have these things on screen, as we've mentioned a lot of times before, um, but representation is so integral. And um, it's kind of shocking that there hasn't been a film about Marie Curie before now. Do you know, actually, I have just had a quick goog, and apparently there was a Greer Greer Garson film in 1943 um, about Marie Curie, which I'd never heard of before. I know Greer Garson fairly well, but I'd never heard of that film, so... Oh, me um, neither. Okay, fair enough. That's good. But but that kind of says something as well. Well, I guess because it was a long time ago that that got made, but it's a shame that we didn't know about that. Um, So, you know, it shows that retelling stories, again, can be just equally as important. Um, Do you know what? There was also a film in 1997 with Isabel Hooper. Um, (laughs) But then that does seem like that was quite a French film and that it seems like it was mainly just released in France. I'm not sure if it was ever released more internationally than that. And it was based on a play. So, hey, you know, a great thing about recording these podcasts from home in our little duvet studios is that you can just sit here and google the answers <laughs> yeah it does help it does help well you know, and and i do remember that there was a play maybe two years ago about her which is good but like again i still think there's loads of people that don't know the full story of marie curie and seeing it on screen is just 
really good. So, you know, we see, we get, you know, um, remakes and retellings of so many stories, especially like biographies or kind of historical portrayals of things that get told again and again for like the next generation. And I think that that's good, especially if it's got different talent behind it, because uh, this film is directed by um, the same director as Persepolis. Persepolis? Yes, yeah, Marjan Satrapi. Yeah, exactly, which, you know, is just a really cool thing to see her career develop as well. Um, so it gives more opportunities to people behind the camera as well, which I think is super important. Yeah, I, I mean, has she directed much in between Persepolis and this film? Well, let's use our home Google. <laughs> quick, quick Google says that um, she's done a couple of things, but I think she's not been seen as much since Persepolis. It's actually quite exciting to see. I think we talk about quite a lot on the podcast about young male directors being uh, making a little small independent film and then being scooped up, mentored by somebody like Steven Spielberg and given the next Star Wars sequel to make. So um, it, it looks like she's done a couple of films since 2007 and then this is perhaps her biggest film since Persepolis. And that's quite exciting, actually, because it is it is quite a big film by the looks of things. Yeah, it's really cool. And I think like since we started talking about that on the podcast, <laughs> not like we've been in effect, like a Scully effect. I just mean that things have changed a little bit. Um, towards that angle of I am seeing a lot more kind of independent female filmmakers um, who've made maybe one or two independent features and then got to have a big crack at something massive with broad appeal and, you know, working with a major studio, um, including... One second. <laughs> boop, 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 boop. That's the Googling noise, the international <laughs> noise for Googling whilst podcasting. So there's Chloe Zhao, who we love because she made The Rider, which was one of our top 2018 films. Um, she's now directing The Eternals for Marvel, which is just such a huge... That's bonkers. Bonkers jump, but I'm so pleased for her, especially if she gets to have an enjoyable experience, which I hope she does. Yeah. And then um, in terms of writers, um, Christina Hodgson, who I really like, who writes a lot of big action films now. She she wrote something called Shut In, Shut In and then Unforgettable, but then she got Bumblebee, the Transformers film, and then Birds of Prey, the Harley Quinn film, and then she's also doing The Flash and Batgirl. So big, big stuff. And her and Margot Robbie have worked together recently to do a, like, women in, you know, women in non-binary people to do, to get to write more action films um and they're kind of just helping them workshop you know five or six scripts between these people to get out to major studios to increase that um just the playing even the playing field a little bit about who gets their hands on these kind of stories and gets to do that um which is super cool and there's also um one last one <laughs> Okay, there's also Lana Wilson, who is a documentary uh, filmmaker. She made something called After Tiller and The Departure and then got to direct Miss Americana, which is a Taylor Swift documentary, which I know doesn't sound maybe as huge if you're not a big fan, but that got played at Sundance and it's she's obviously got a massive following and apparently... Whoa. You know, Taylor Swift asked, like, Netflix, you know, give me, you know, three or four female directors right now. I don't mind what they've done before. It doesn't matter. I just want to, you know, get somebody interesting on, on the project. And 
So obviously that's probably catapulted her to get loads more options about what she gets to direct and make now, uh, which is super cool. Wow, that's bonkers. And yeah, good on Taylor Swift for, for using her power in that way. But After Tiller is, um, is a real difficult documentary mm-hmm. about um, a doctor that was providing abortions in America and then was murdered. That's, that, that is intense to go from that to a Taylor Swift documentary, but amazing that, um, that female directors are being uplifted into something, get them a bit more money and a bit more, some more viewers. So that's fantastic. Yeah, it's really really cool. So I'm 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 looking forward to giving um to giving Radioactive a watch. I love Rosamund Pike. I think she's an extraordinary actress. And uh, Private a Private War really showed how amazing she is at kind of playing real people, which is something that uh, producer Jay got to chat about with Sam Riley about that that difficult line to tread of when you're playing someone that actually exists and maybe there isn't a lot of footage for you to kind of study to make sure you get that right so some of it's your own interpretation and some of it's what you study which um i think is really always really interesting to talk about um so radioactive is available to download um and to own on the 15th of june and comes to DVD on the 27th of July. So it's a really exciting digital uh, release that we're having during these lockdown times. So I hope you enjoy the interview. So first of all, just want to talk a little bit about you and, and your career sort of this film aside. How, how did you get started in acting generally? Well, um, the nativity play was probably my <laughs> first experience like a lot of english um boys and girls and i you know there were i wasn't particularly academic and you know i i got immediately some compliments i suppose you'd say or and i could feel it when i went on the stage that you know i was doing something something right applause it was simply applause <laughs> the, the, the need for um yeah for a clap um and then i you know it went on from there i did a lot of school plays and i unfortunately had a drama teacher at school who sort of said well you know you're the you're the only one really interested in this at school so if you want to push yourself you should apply for the national youth theater which at the time you know held i auditioned for it in leeds and they held auditions all over the country and then you could have a two-week summer course in London. And they had kids from everywhere, you know. But it was really an incredible experience because we all loved, you know, we were all little lovies, you know. We all loved <laughs> theatre. And, and it was a really incredible experience. And I did, a, I did a play with the National Youth Theatre when I was 19. And an agent saw me. Um, because there's a sort of rule in England, if you go to drama school, you can't accept work for the period of time that you're there. And I was, I applied for drama school for RADA and Lambda and all the other ones. And I was rejected from all of them. So I was very grateful that I got this agent through other means. And I tried to be an actor for a year, getting the train from Leeds down to London and nothing really stuck. And it was pretty disheartening work really, you know, um, going forward for things that I wasn't particularly interested in, but hoping to get my foot in the door like everyone else. And at the same time, I was playing in a pub rock band in Leeds. And 
I remember sort of thinking, I'm going to have to decide because I went for an audition for Coronation Street. And I'm not saying anything negative about Coronation <laughs> Street. But I realized that if I got that job, I could never be a musician. And somehow that was still a big dream. So I told the agent that I didn't want to be an actor anymore. And then was a, had a record deal for five years. And then that went tits up, if I can say that. <laughs> and I rang the agent again four years later. And they said, you know, amazingly, they said, next week they're doing open auditions um, in Manchester. They're looking for someone to play Ian Curtis, who was the singer of a Manchester band called Joy Division. <laughs> we have a passing resemblance. And they were looking for someone that no one had ever heard of. And because I'd failed as an actor and as a musician, no one had heard of me. So, and that film premiered at the Cannes Film Festival. And I met my wife doing that. I came to live in Berlin. That's where I'm talking to you from now. And it sort of got me every job since because it was so successful in, 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 in that sense. But in other ways, you know, it was clear that I wanted to, was an actor when I was very little. I took the sort of the, the playing games that children play much more seriously than, than some of my pals. You know, I would have to be, I would have to be in the appropriate costume, <laughs> <laughs> which they all thought was very, I mean, they all accepted it after a while, but you know, if we were playing gangsters that I go, Oh, I'll be back in a minute. And I come out with one of my dad's old suits or something. And I go, oh, <laughs> here he goes. That's interesting. So, I mean, it sounds like um, it was the stage, really, that pulled you into acting. And you mentioned National Youth Theatre and stuff like that. I know, um, I know, I know a couple of people who've been through that, and they said it did sort of change change their life, basically. Um, do you do you do much stage acting now, or do you sort of do you, do you miss that side of things, or do you much prefer being in front of the camera? I don't know. I I, I used to get incredibly nervous really nervous, like vomiting nervous. And, and it was, it was incredibly physically exhausting for me in that sense. I would be, I, I couldn't think of anything else during the day. You know, I have a husky voice from, from singing. Um, that's what I tell my mum. <laughs> and I, I was always worried it wouldn't last. And, and whenever I was on stage, I, was, I, was, I, I loved it. I was more happy than anyone else. But the getting towards it was always incredibly uh, draining, shall we say. And then I was, you know, I'd always been a film fan. I, it's amazing how many actors don't watch lots of films mm. or aren't interested in cinema or cinema history. But I was always a fan, you know, I used to get thrown out of class for reading Empire magazine at the back or whatever, <laughs> back, back in the day. Um, so to be able to be in cinema, I realized I sort of jumped the food chain with control. It gave me an opportunity to, to play at a high, in the prim, you know, the Premier League, if you like. Mm. And so I never really, I never was offered any theatre work and it never really occurred to me to do it again. I mean, you don't, you know, not that I only work for financial gain, but it's very difficult to make money as a theatre actor. And I enjoy, I enjoy the thing about filming is that you do sort of incredibly intense periods of work, eight weeks, 12 weeks, where you're focused on a particular character. It's, and I, I love the whole process of making the film. And then you go home and you can be with your family and 
you know, and then do something else completely different. I enjoyed the intensity of it in its short, in its sort of shortness. So no, that was a long answer. No, 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 no that was, that's really interesting. <laughs> um, so moving on to uh, this, this new role in, in Radioactive, um, what, what drew you to it in particular? Um, I know there's obviously the parallel, you mentioned control, um, both, both of those roles are obviously real people that you're playing. Um, so sort of, yeah, what, what drew you to this and what sort of things do you need to con consider when you're, when you're playing a real life person? Well, what drew me to it was when I read the script, I realized I knew very little about Marie Curie and Pierre Curie and their relationship and their, you know, the, how they led their life, this sort of on equal terms, both respecting the other one's brilliance. There was no, you know, no insecurity in him as a man in that sense. He, he, um, they lived equality with one another. They only fought for equality in the sense that he was the only one offered the Nobel Prize at first and he refused it unless she was uh, accepted as well. Mm. Playing with Rosamund Pike, obviously, she's an incredible actress. I knew Marjan Satrapi, the director, because she'd been on the jury with my wife at a film festival, so I loved her. Funnily enough, when I auditioned for it, they said that I would do a chemistry test with Rosamund Pike, <laughs> which I thought was, I was like, bloody hell, that's pretty thorough, isn't it? I bought, <laughs> I bought chemistry for dummies online, and, and actually there was a chemistry test in the sense they wanted to see whether we had any chemistry with one another. <laughs> which you clearly do in the film, I think. Well, I think, thank you for saying that. But it sees such a, you know, when you play with people that are, brilliant at what they do it's effortless you're only really reacting to what the other one gives you it feels like that and so you know it's a bit like if you play table tennis against someone much better than you you for whatever reason play better than you normally would or whatever you raise your game to these to these moments the thing about playing real people is i've been lucky in the, in the occasions that I've done it. With, in, in, in regards to Ian Curtis, the singer I played, there's only really footage of him performing. So I had to watch that. I mean, I watched nothing else, to be honest, for about half a year and <laughs> practiced that at home. To be fair, I had friends that were quite good at it as well because it was on repeat in my house. Um, <laughs> but no one had seen him interviewed. So there's not that sort of mannerism that I have to, I don't have to do an impersonation of him in real life. And similarly with Pierre, there's a wonderful book that Marie, Marie Curie actually wrote a biography of him, which details his childhood. And so that's like a diary almost. So you, you feel, you begin to feel you understand someone like that. I'm not stifled by everyone knowing, you know, if, if you were to play Boris Johnson, heaven forbid, then, you know, everyone knows exactly what he looks like, but I'm sort of free of that. I can make him a human being. Yeah, but that's it's, it's, great, it's great fun. And with me, a lot of the time, it's, you do a lot of the, the homework. It was important to Marjan that I looked like I knew what I was talking about when I talked about science. We had science lessons, and I love <laughs> doing that sort of thing. But um, once they put the beard on me and the costume, you really, and you really can look in the mirror and not and not see yourself in the same way, you can, 
make that sort of bizarre leap which you have to find in yourself to being someone else while retaining emotional truth i think actors call it yeah that makes sense so it's an interesting one i guess um in terms of the sort of physicality of the performance and mannerisms you've got nothing to go on but it, it's interesting i guess you read the the marie curie book about pierre curie and sort of gain insights about him through her and, and that plays into things. Uh, and you're led by the script to some extent as well, by, by the scenes that your character is, op the opportunities your character is given to express whatever the script requires of you in that, in that moment. You know, and it's a sort of, it's, it's, it's piecing all of those parts of the puzzle together. That is interesting. And the, the sort of Ian Curtis as well, going back to that, um, in the, the fact there's only sort of live footage of him and that's obviously very different a lot of the times in that film. I don't know. It, I mean, I've not seen it in years, to be honest, but I, it, I can't remember there was actually much um, footage of you on stage as him. Though it's mostly you talking, whereas... I know there's a lot. There's a lot. We did nine, the nine gig scenes. Maybe it feels like more to us because we actually learned all the songs. Yeah. Oh, we, wow. played a, we played as a... Which wasn't the original idea. We were, gonna a tribute band. we were going to mime and we became a tribute band because we we hated the fact that we were being ourselves when we played the scenes but then it was suddenly his voice so we worked our asses off um to get to get good enough and then we brought the director in a day or two before the first scene and played him a concert of us as the, as the band so if and, and then we realized the concert scenes were the extras were all Joy Division fans that they found in a forum. <laughs> so it was, we were, my stage fright came back with a vengeance. Then. <laughs> there was a guy in the front row who had Ian Curtis's face tattooed on his chest. He showed me in a check, so that was pretty. But we, re, we knew we were doing all right because we got a lot of good feedback then, which encouraged us to, that we were doing well. Mm. Uh, yeah, it's interesting. And I, I was going to compare it to, um, correct me if I'm wrong, you played Marky Smith in, um, the, in, in the, the Happy Mondays film, um, which is like a you know, similar role, but similar era in Manchester. Bands, I was, I but, was but, cut but out. But Marky Smith's much more of a, sort of people know his mannerisms and characteristics, don't they? They did. I mean, it's a funny, funny story. That was my first experience with cinema. That I, I went for an audition in Manchester to play the drummer of Joy Division, which is the band I ended up playing the singer of later. Yeah. But I couldn't play drums. And I'd been in a fight in Leeds the night before the audition. I'd been punched for wearing a pair of red shoes, which someone took a offense <laughs> at. So I arrived at the audition with a black eye and a plaster on my chin. And Marky e. Smith, who I didn't, hadn't heard of, I'm ashamed to say, was always getting punched by his bandmates. So I looked a lot like him. <laughs> But when I went to the cinema to watch it, I was edited out. So my first experience of the film world was a good lesson in uh, how cutthroat it can be. Yeah, that, that's a heartbreaking, isn't it? But I got my own back. <laughs> but by playing the singer? Yeah. <laughs> Great. So I'm going to move on from um, this now and talk a little bit more about um, sort of film in general. You mentioned that so you've been a film fan for as long as you can remember. And as you say, a lot of, a lot of actors aren't um, necessarily as into film as, as other people, which, which I think is strange as well. Um, what are some of your fondest 
um, cinema going memories sort of we say that our podcast is a celebration of going to the cinema and the act of watching a film with people so just wondered if you've got any um, highlights I think I remember you know one of my uh, first big cinema moments that I got myself really excited about was um, Timothy Dalton's first James Bond film which came out I think in 1987 I was seven years old and I, you know, in the, in the 80s, they used to play, amazingly, they used to play a lot of James Bond films in the afternoon. So we were all familiar with, with the Roger Moore ones, but, you know, they'd finally found a replacement. And I, and I was taken as a treat um, with my mum and dad, not my younger brothers and sisters, which made it special, you know, <laughs> purely for me. And I was really, you know, the whole... I think I'd seen cartoons in the cinema before then, but nothing cinema, you know, truly cinematic. I was, I, and I, you know, I, I was completely uh, overwhelmed by by how brilliant it was, and started a James Bond fascination. Um, I don't know. I've always gone to the cinema. I've gone on my own to the cinema a lot as well. If people, if my friends weren't interested. And, I do that a lot in London now when I go back where I have the opportunity to see films that aren't coming here in Germany to the cinema. And I just, I love the cinema experience. I mean, I, my first film experiences were always at home, you know, um, to the television. I think as, as most people's are. Well, I mean, really. even, you know, there's been a lot of talk about what Martin Scorsese thinks about cinema recently, but if you, if you watch his documentaries and listen to him talk about cinema, he was a very sickly child, and a lot of his first film experiences were through the television set. So I think that is still a legitimate way of, of igniting the, the, the interest. You know, and the arguments over watching a cinema film on a phone seem obvious to me, but, um, no, but I mean, the most bizarre cinema experience was when um, I saw myself on a cinema screen for the first time, and it was at, at the Cannes Film Festival. So I'd never seen myself on a, t on, a, on a screen before. And the first time was in an enormous hall with everyone in tuxedos, and, and it went really well, you know, so there was a lot of standing ovations and all that nonsense. Um, and that was completely bizarre you know i left nail marks in the seats because <laughs> you know how strange it is listening to yourself on an answer phone it's imagine what it's like looking at your face the size of a bus you sort of you never you've never unless you're very, unless you're very vain you've never sort of seen inspected yourself in that detail yeah um, but it was a wonderful but it changed my life you know it, it, it really did change my life so that that's probably the most incredible yeah I'm, I'm not surprised and it's nice that you say when you're sort of back in london you still make an effort to go to the cinema and, and things like that even i watched yeah i watched uncut gems uh wow. the last time at the great, prince again, charles great one to see in the cinema yeah i really wanted to and i was back then um and i watched the afternoon one but there was still a few people in there and we were you know you, you we all laughed together and sort of gasped at certain moments of it and it's it's great i really enjoyed the film anyway i thought it was a great film yeah it yeah i, I did as well and again i think it's a, a great one to watch um not just in a cinema because you know it's high octane big screen 
big sound system and things like that. But there are those moments where people, you know, the room laughs, the room gasps, and, and things like that. And I think that's what, what and makes it's a, it's a so film special. with it's got the tension in that film. You just sort of you you know from the first scene that it's not going to go well for this guy because <laughs> he's a complete. I don't want to swear, <laughs> but but the, I thought they amped the tension incredibly well and it was palpable in the room you know we were all going oh god you know it was great yeah so if you don't let up for the whole two hours do you and then no. just big sigh at the end yeah absolutely <laughs> um and one final question if we've got time um sure. touched on this just at the start but um obviously we're based in sheffield you're um a sort of a yorkshire exile do, do you miss do you miss yorkshire what do you miss about it we, we like to um we get excited when we can talk to someone who's uh local uh, well i'm from if there are any of your local listeners i'm from menston which is um sort of between bradford it's in the wharf valley it's actually closer to bradford than leeds although people always call me a leeds actor because that was where i was living when um and where the band played mostly mm -hmm. my family heritage is much more linked to the textile industry in bradford i miss my mum's cooking <laughs> The pubs, I suppose, yeah. and friends. Um, and I miss the war, you know, I miss the warmth of the people of, of Yorkshire. That's not to say that the Germans can't be warm. Um, <laughs> they're warmer than I was led to believe, actually. But, um, you know, it's been difficult during the pandemic, particularly watching how, uh, you know, the country and particularly Yorkshire being so heavily hit by it by these things it's it's very hard um been very hard to watch but i'm a big fan of filey i had all of my family holidays as a child were spent in filey um on the east coast of yorkshire sort of between bridlington and scarborough and yeah. i miss by you know if i hear seagulls i'm in i'm in filey i love I, I miss i miss those aspects of it and do you get do you get back here very very often we we were there for christmas Thank goodness. I'm not sure when I'm next. I don't know when I'm yeah. next going to be back. Um, and we do, and you know, it's 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 a small world. We can still travel, um, travel in between. So I'm hoping I'm going to be able to see my parents at some point this year, and my family. Um, I'm, I'm sure you. But will. none of you know, none of us know, do we? It's impossible to say, isn't it? We live in hope, but I yeah, miss every. I, you know, I miss you. I'm. You know, I'm uh, I'm an ambassador to for Yorkshire. I hope here in, in I think you are <laughs> in Berlin. Um, and whether I might have to get a, a German passport if if the Brexit no deal goes through, then so be it. But I, it'll only be a piece of paper. Yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm Yorkshire forever. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Um, thanks so much for this, Sam. It's been been really great to speak to you. Um, and again, just congratulations on the film. Um, Thank you very much. I hope, yeah. you, I hope your listeners enjoy it. And stay safe, everybody. <laughs> Producer, Jay Platt. Logo designed by Lydia Lipinski at Thoughts Make Things. Hosted by Jack Chell and Abby Standish. With thanks to Sam Riley, Organic Publicity and Deborah Parker. The Cinema for All podcast is supported by the BFI awarding funds from the National Lottery. Thank, Thank you. you.